You're listening to the first episode of Work Shift from RSA Radio, a series looking at the changes underway in the way we work, how they should be responded to, and the type of working future we want to create. I'm Matthew Taylor, and in this episode, we're looking at the impact of automation. Since the Industrial Revolution, new technology has enabled production to become more efficient, allowing us to produce more output with less labour power. This is the driver of increases in productivity, incomes and living standards. Historically, new jobs have always been created and new occupations and industries have emerged. But is there something different about the current wave of technology? If not joblessness, could it lead to widening inequality? And what, if anything, should we do to ensure the gains from technology are broadly shared across society? Joining me to explore this subject are an expert in machine learning and its impact on the labour market, Michael Osborne, who's co-director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technology and Employment, the economics journalist Ryan Avent, senior editor at The Economist newspaper and author of The Wealth of Humans, Work and Its Absence in the 21st Century, and also Judy Weissman, Anthony Giddens Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics, and her most recent book is Pressed for Time, the Acceleration of Life in Digital Capitalism. I want us to talk about two sets of issues, if we might. The first one is, it is almost impossible to get away from this debate about the impact of AI and robotics. Turn on the radio, turn on the TV, go on the internet, open a newspaper, everyone's talking about it. So in the first part of our conversation, I want to try to get to the very heart of this. Michael, if I can start with you... In this debate, what is the thing you you think we most need to understand about what is happening and what is going to happen? Well, I should say firstly that my day job is in machine learning and probably the thing I'd like to convey to your audience first is just the pace of change within the field. So it's been a tremendously exciting few years for machine learning. Some of the advances that might have reached the ears of your audience include the um, exciting success of an algorithm developed by London's own Google DeepMind in playing the ancient game of Go. So their system, AlphaGo, outperformed a former world champion, Lisa Dole, last year. And it's worth mentioning that Go is particularly interesting in that it is really quite a subtle and complex game that for a long time people thought could only be successfully played with, you know, a deep sort of human intuition. And the success of an algorithm at that task suggests that the broader ability of algorithms to substitute for human work might have been underappreciated. Since that success, there have been yet further advances in uh, machine learning and the related fields of robotics and computer vision that suggest even more work might be under threat due to technological advances. One advance is that within the field of autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars. In November and December, we've seen advances uh, by Uber's self-driving vehicles culminating in a trial both in Pittsburgh and San Francisco of self-driving taxis effectively with clear implications for Uber's current cohort of human drivers. And then we've also seen the exciting announcement by Amazon of a uh, supermarket, a little um, convenience store in Seattle, which completely obviates the need for human checkout assistance. So it uses the customer's mobile phone to uh, confirm whether they've entered the store and then tracks them using the data from the phone to find out what products they're picking up from shelves and automatically bills their Amazon account uh, when they exit the store, all using kind of machine learning to understand the behaviour of the customer. So again, a technology that's likely to have immediate impact on employment in retail. So, Michael, your key point is about the pace and scale of change. I've seen people who've been critical of the kind of quite high estimates that you made about both the US and the UK in terms of the number of jobs that could be 
automated. It sounds to me as though you stick by those kinds of figures because, if anything, the pace and scale of change has accelerated since you made those estimates. I think that's right. And there have been um, some findings from our original study that have been borne out since the study was published, one of which was the finding that waiters and waitresses had a probability of automation of 94%. Our procedure had suggested the result might have been the opposite, that waiters and waitresses might have been uh, protected from automation. We were thinking about the role of a waiter or waitress in persuading a customer to buy products, the small talk they'd perform at a table. But nonetheless, the algorithm we used came out with exactly the opposite conclusion. And subsequent to that finding, we've in fact seen uh, restaurants in the US in particular deploying things like tablets on the tables to um, take orders from customers to take payment and even to perform that slightly more complicated task of recommending products. Ryan, let me turn to you in Washington. Michael's emphasised the pace and scale of change and the massive impact it's going to have on the labour market. What would you want to say is the key thing we need to understand about what's going on and what is going to happen? Well, I think the thing that we are beginning to focus on appropriately is the way in which these sorts of economic changes, when new technologies are applied in different settings in the workforce, the way they affect workers and the, the way those effects on workers then have knock-on effects on the political system. I think the perception that people have is that when you get this wave of automation, then you're likely to find massive numbers of people suddenly being out of work as robots come in to take their jobs. And what I've tried to emphasize and let people know is that that's not actually how we should expect things to play out because most of our social safety nets are not structured so that people can give up on work. If they're displaced from one job by a robot, they have to go out and find another because they have bills to pay, family to support. And so as the pace of displacement picks up, you end up having more and more people competing for the tasks that can't yet be automated. And that competition among workers leads to downward pressure on wages. It ends up shuffling lots of workers into fields that aren't particularly rewarding to work in, doing low-skilled manual labor. So instead of mass unemployment, we get a lot of people working low-wage jobs. And uh, I think that's counterintuitive, and it's important to understand, in part because, getting to the second point, the way that that plays out affects how the political system responds to it. I think if everyone were suddenly to go into work one day and find that a robot had occupied their chair and they were fired, that would sort of focus everyone's attention on the nature of the problem, and we could really grapple with solutions tailored to that problem. When you just have a situation where lots of workers are unhappy, not finding the sorts of opportunities that they would like to have, then it's harder to identify what's gone wrong. And so you have a lot of attention being paid to immigrants and to foreign trade. And then also you have lots of politicians who can exploit this uncertainty and come up with policy choices that are often going to make things worse. The thing I would emphasize is that this isn't going to play out the way we necessarily anticipate. It is interesting. You're, you're saying that what we need to attend to in a sense here is, is supply and demand and the economic context, because you could create five million more jobs tomorrow in Britain and just make people happy because you would have more care workers, you'd have more teaching assistants, you'd have more nursery nurses, you'd have more youth workers. The problem is we don't have the money to pay for those jobs because those jobs are state jobs and the government hasn't got any money. So am I right in saying, Ron, that in a way what you want to say is this isn't just an issue or even it isn't an issue about the absolute need for work or the capacity for society to generate things to be done. The problem is that 
it's the imbalance of supply and demand as technology changes things. Part of it is about an imbalance of supply and demand. And what I mean by that is when you have technology that can substitute for workers, it creates this abundance of labor that that depresses uh, people's pay. But I, I don't know that the issue is that governments simply aren't creating enough work. That would be one way to solve this problem of abundant labor is to say we're going to fund a lot of new care jobs and we're going to reserve those for people. I think it's more that the dynamics that the technology changes put in place create trade-offs that you can't avoid. So if you were to put a lot of people in government employment and care occupations, either you're going to greatly increase the cost of things like health care and education, or uh, you're going to greatly increase the tax burden, or a bit of both. Maybe that's the way humanity decides they want to, to solve this problem. But I think that question is not yet decided, and much of what we will be doing as in society and in our political systems over the next few decades is arguing about how are we going to solve this problem? Are we going to come up with make work to keep people busy? Are we going to pay people to not work and let them do whatever they want with their time or something else? And that's a difficult debate that lies ahead of us. Thank you. And I'm looking forward, Ryan, to later on when we talk about what do we need to do to know how you would answer that question. But before we get on to that, let me bring in Judy Weissman. Judy, I think you're slightly more sceptical of a slightly more critical lens on the the idea that technology is necessarily going to change things in particular ways? What I find very disturbing is that the conversation takes place as if technology itself has got a drive, a momentum, is doing things to jobs. And one of the things that I've been trying to argue for many decades now is that we need to turn the focus round and think about, well, why did we get the technology that we get? What are the politics of the technology? What choices are we making? Where are we spending money investing? If you think, for example, of even something like the gig economy, one could imagine having platforms that were cooperatively owned by the people who get the work, and organising the work in a very different way. And yet people speak about the gig economy as inherently somehow organised in such a way that it increases inequality. I mean, a whole series of choices have been made in terms of who owns that technology, how the technology is being designed. I was at a paper last night, if I could just give you a concrete example. I was paper last night on high-frequency trading, and there was a long discussion about the shift from fibre optics to microwave technologies to get trades from Chicago to New York Stock Exchange, right? And there were philosophers at these discussions. And one of the philosophers said, well, this is an awful lot of technological innovation, bright minds, infrastructure, and is it socially productive? An awful lot of money is being spent on military research and development. And you may say to me, well, there are always commercial offsprings from this, like, for example, drones. And I would say to you, well, I would rather we as a society make decisions about where we want research and development to go and what the social problems are that we would like to solve, rather than having these products like drones and thinking of uses for them after the event. Isn't there yet something that is inexorable about technology in the sense of, you know, whatever kind of political regime you might have, nobody would still be making slide rules once we can have pocket calculators. In some senses, when technology comes across, it clearly supersedes that which is already there. Despite the political choices, it is going to have the kind of impact that Michael and Ryan have talked about. 
Well, I think the impact is unpredictable. I'm old enough to remember these debates around the microelectronic revolution. I really do remember the debates about leisure society, there'd be no work, we were getting rid of all the secretaries. I mean, you know, I think we do need a historical perspective on these things. You bring in email rather than letters. People send a lot more emails. There are a lot of different kinds of work created. Now, I mean, I can't tell you definitely or not whether that will be the case, but I do think it is worth spending more time reading economic history, thinking about the fact that we're already changing jobs all the time with technology. If you think back 20 years ago, there weren't smartphones, there wasn't email, there were still fax machines, there was supposed to be a paperless office. I mean, I just think one can give as many examples of new forms of work. I know that there are all these books now about the professions and the professions are going to be decimated. But, you know, there's an awful lot of lawyers around. There's a lot more litigation. There are a lot more different kinds of work. And I don't think it's a black and white case that somehow there's a finite number of jobs because actually technological change changes things. It changes the nature of work. It changes the nature of what we do. So, Ryan, what's your response to Judy's suggestion that there's a sense of technological determinism about this? I mean, I read the other day that MOOCs seem to be in decline, which were supposed to be kind of smashing through higher education a few years ago, that more people are buying vinyl. There's a kind of anti-digital backlash. Do you think we are being a little bit too deterministic in this debate? I think it's certainly true that the way that we respond to technology is very important and it shapes the extent to which technology benefits one group versus another, benefits everyone, and that there's nothing deterministic about that. We have the power to have different sorts of societies depending on what sort of technology we have. I guess I would say that I think the move toward a more cognitively capable computing is baked in and does have particular implications that we're going to have to grapple with. But I I would also say that, that it's quite right that we have to take a historical perspective, and I think the historical perspective is instructive here in a few different ways. One, the sort of digital revolution has, in fact, been quite hard on large numbers of workers. We've had new job categories. Those job categories have largely benefited people with a high level of skill uh, who've seen their incomes go up. If you step back, the number of people working in low-wage jobs has gone up. The labor share, the amount of national income that flows to, to workers in the form of wages and salaries, has been declining for the last three decades. And so I think there has been pressure there. And that's not that surprising because when we look back at the Industrial Revolution, when new machines were coming in, it didn't just automatically lead to great new jobs that people could then immediately fill and have their wages go up. For the first 100 years of industrialization, wages adjusted for living costs did not rise by all that much. There was obviously quite a lot of labor unrest because people were unhappy with their lot. Uh, And it wasn't until, you know, decades and decades passed and we'd invested in education and infrastructure and a social safety net that we finally got to the point where we had good jobs for a lot of people and the gains from growth were broadly shared. Historical perspectives suggest that this stuff isn't going to take care of itself. I think some economic historians refer to this as the Engels pause, which is the kind of period when technology is changing things, but it's not yet improving people's living standards. And it leads to the kinds of things that uh, Engels saw in in Manchester, and he was writing about the conditions of the working class. And I think one of your points, Ryan, is that whilst it might have been possible to kind of repress working class resistance to what was happening to them in an earlier age, now we live in a very different time of democracy and social media and populism. And so our capacity to say to people, well, look, just sit and wait for 50 years until this stuff benefits you all is is much less. That's absolutely right. In a lot of cases, workers couldn't resist because they hadn't been organised 
organizations of workers were illegal. In lots of countries, they didn't have the franchise. They didn't have labor parties to speak for them. That's all very different now. It's just not sustainable for a politician in a democracy to say, look, your great-grandchildren are going to have it great, and I'm sorry that all your expectations for your own future have been dashed as a result of the economic changes we've experienced. And so we either need to somehow satisfy people who are losing out from these kinds of changes or you know, face the consequences, which could mean taking steps to prevent these productivity-improving technologies from ever being deployed in the first place. Now, Michael, you need to have, in a sense, right of reply, because I think that Judy has been saying these kind of estimates about what's going to happen, that it's the inexorability of it, in a sense, are overstated. It's much more contested and unknowable than that. What's your response? Well, actually, I agree with Judy that it's right that we question the direction of technological progress. To speak to one of her points, actually, there is a growing consensus within machine learning that we should oppose the use of the technologies we develop for military purposes. So there have been various um, movements towards banning autonomous weapons launched from within the community, which I think is an entirely positive development. But I think even having said that, there is a certain inexorability to the development of technologies. And if I could speak to some of the consequences of that that have been raised in earlier parts of the conversation... It's true that historically technological progress hasn't led to mass unemployment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there haven't been severe consequences, as Ryan has mentioned. One of the consequences that's been already raised is that of distributional issues. So in fact, one very strong finding from our original work was that there does seem to be a clear link between an occupation's degree of skill, as measured by either median wage or educational attainment, and its susceptibility to automation. So simply put, it would seem to be that the uh, people who find the burden of automatability resting most heavily upon their shoulders are those who are least skilled, which is alarming, right? Because you might reasonably assume that those are exactly the people who are going to be least well-equipped to move into whatever new occupations might emerge. That's also related to the problem of new job creation. So, of course, we know that technologies create new forms of work, But I think there's a reasonable amount of evidence to speak to the fact that there haven't been quite as many jobs generated by these new technologies as we would have hoped. So there's some work from my co-author Carl Frey, which shows that the fraction of the US workforce engaged in new industries has undergone monotonic decline over the last three decades. For all the hype around firms like Facebook or Uber, they're not really generating the same scale of jobs that we've seen in historical industries. So General Motors, for instance. And what about this point that I made about the fact that there are lots and lots and lots of jobs that people could do and that would make the world a better place in the area of caring and relationships? Is there not enough scope in looking after people, as it were, and connecting people to make up the slack that's going to be left by technological change? So I agree firstly with your statement there that actually that kind of work is relatively protected from automation. So our study find that one of the characteristics of jobs that was most protective of automation was that uh, requirement for social intelligence, that is, understanding another person such that you could, for instance, care for them. And there were um, occupations such as mental health counsellors or primary school teachers that you might argue fall into that kind of care category that were right at the bottom of our list of automatable occupations. So both of those two occupations had risk of automatability less than 1%. But I, I think the, the argument that says that actually we shouldn't rely on those jobs creating work for all those displaced by technology is exactly the economic one. It's not clear who would pay for those jobs. Mm. 
And I would also caution that even in those kinds of occupations, it's likely there'll be increasing automation. So the service sector, which might also be argued should be protected by that kind of requirement for social intelligence, is seeing uh, some degree of automation. I mentioned waiters and waitresses before, and according to our analysis, is likely to see even more automation in the uh, near future. I'm, as it happens, spent this afternoon chairing a review the Prime Minister has asked me to undertake, looking at modern employment and how we should respond to it. So I'm thinking a lot about what do we do about the early indications of this, things like the gig economy. So, Judy, respond to what Michael and Ryan said, but move us on to, if you, as it were, had complete power, what would be the thing you would be wanting us to do to ensure that technological change benefits the human race? Well, it's not a new thing to say, but we have a long tradition of actually engaging workers in having a voice in participating in the kinds of technologies that are going to transform their work. And I must say, one of the things I really object to, and Michael sort of knows this, economists as well don't get out there and actually understand the minutiae, the details, the complexity of a lot of what work is. Jobs are very complicated things. Human intelligence is a very complicated thing. And there seems to me a very big gap, actually, between the claims that are currently being made about what these technologies can do and what most of the work in the service economy entails. So that's the first thing. And I mean, this is an old point as well in the sociology of work, which is the way in which skill is defined and paid for so that programmers are highly valued and paid a lot and creche workers are seen as not very skilled and not paid very well. So the first thing we could do is have a genuine discussion about how we should value various kinds of work and how they should be paid and how we can redistribute the goods that are being made from uh, robots. I mean, I gather Bill Gates has come out with some idea about taxing robots, and my response to that is, why don't these companies pay normal tax in order to sustain us to be able to expand public services? I suppose the other point I would make is that we know that there's an army, actually, of grandmothers looking after children for free, of people looking after their parents. There's huge amounts of work that goes on that is voluntary, that is unpaid, and that doesn't even come into this equation. Ryan, you you have absolutely emphasised this question of the transition. How do we get from here to somewhere else and the dangers, the division, political extremism? So what is it do you think we need to do now in the next few years if we are not going to see technology drive greater political and social division? It's a really hard question. We sort of know if we think that automation is going to continue and grow more powerful. We kind of know what the world in the distant future is going to look like or or should look like. And that's with humans doing much less work, uh, spending much more time doing work outside the market that is valued for other reasons. And there's going to be more redistribution or more social ownership of capital and things of that nature. But if you kind of look at the institutions we have now and you think, well, how do we get from here to there? Uh, it's very difficult to see how that happens without a lot of major political and social change. In the near term, what we really need to do is to focus on getting the garden variety economic policy as close to right as we can. I think care occupations are something that's going to continue to absorb a disproportionate share of the workforce. But the reality is that a lot of people who are displaced by technologies in other industries haven't been given the training and don't necessarily have the outlook or the mindset 
that's going to prepare them for that kind of work. And it's going to be difficult to take people who grew up thinking that working with their hands in a manufacturing industry was good man's work and to then retrain them and have them do something else. So I think that the timing is the issue. And if we're underinvesting in infrastructure, for instance, that's a huge mistake and more of a mistake than we might otherwise have thought, given the automation threat. If we're underinvesting in housing, housing construction is a job which creates a lot of good work for the sorts of individuals who face displacement in other industries from technology. In a sense, there is a long-term question, which is probably about the relationship between work and status and our lives, and that's where possibilities like basic income may come into the picture. But in the short to medium term, what we need to be thinking about is how is it we maintain people's possibilities of employment and give people the tools to be more flexible in a faster-changing labour market? That's absolutely right. That should be the short-run focus. Over the long-run focus, getting to those sorts of things like universal basic income, I mean, it's going to require a huge change in the way we think about work and what it means to be a contributing member of society. It's going to require new economic thinking about how economies ought to function. And it's good that these discussions are getting started. I don't think we should expect that they sort of proceed smoothly and peacefully from point A to point B. The Industrial Revolution suggests that it's a very bumpy ride in trying to work out what the new social bargain ought to be and who ought to pay for it and and things of that nature. Michael, you're the one with the scariest numbers. What is it we need to do in the face of the kind of scale of change that you're talking about? I thought I might just address some of the comments on, you know, how much we can trust the results that I've been stating. And I'd agree certainly that our prediction is not final. And I would completely agree with Judy that it's important to understand the minutiae of work in order to appreciate which tasks in particular will be automated. But I would disagree with the statement that service is somehow fundamentally non-automatable. And I think it's important to understand that an automated solution need not do everything that a human worker currently does in order to substitute for that particular role. There have been examples like the um, typing pool of the 1950s and 60s, which consisted of workers able to take dictation and even make coffee, who were fundamentally at the end of the day replaced by uh, word processing software, unable to do any of those things. But on to the point of what we should do, well, I'd say firstly that um, it's important not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and in particular, and of course you'd expect me to say this, I'd hope that we continue to invest in these technologies, because I think one of the bigger issues here is, you know, the kind of productivity decline. And to me, only through the introduction of these new technologies, machine learning and robotics, might we be able to reverse that and perhaps to tackle even bigger issues such as climate change. But probably the biggest issue that I'd like to see addressed is that of um, the distributional consequences of automation. So I think we need to fundamentally find some way to redistribute the wealth that will be generated from these technologies into the hands who will see themselves otherwise suffering. Michael, thank you for that. We could talk for hours, but we need to come to the end. Judy, I'm going to give you, because you have, in a way, a slightly different perspective, I'm going to give you the last word. But actually, I wonder whether, strangely, we are reaching a consensus, which is, I think, Michael, Ryan, want to say that we have got one way or another to affect distribution issues, whether it's distribution of jobs or distribution of 
income if this isn't going to turn pretty nasty. I guess you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, just two things very quickly. One thing we haven't discussed is the polarisation of work and working hours. And actually what we've got at the moment is a society where a group of people work very long hours and lots of people can't get enough work. And old policies of doing something about that, you know, shortening the working week for some more flexible working policies, distributing work, I think is a very important thing not to lose sight of. I agree with a lot of things people have said, but what worries me is that this breathless talk about the speed of innovation, this drive for robotics, I think makes it very difficult to make arguments, to make space for deliberation, citizens' deliberation about the sort of society we want and the sort of technology we want. And I think we should educate citizens and that a lot of the technological innovation that's taking place, particularly in artificial intelligence, is being done in a rather secretive way. And I would like there to be much more transparency and openness about the technologies that are being developed and how we can, as citizens, harness them for greater wealth for more people. Well, that's a great way to end our conversation because that goal of encouraging a greater understanding and insight in this debate about the impact of automation is precisely why we've had this conversation. There'll be other RSA radio discussions about issues similar to this. We'll be talking about gig work and we're going to be talking also about universal a basic income. But this has been a great foundation for those conversations. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Judy, for joining us for this discussion. Thanks, Habes. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to RSA Radio. To make sure you get future episodes, subscribe to RSA Radio wherever you get your podcasts from.